Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast focused on tech innovation in finance, fintech. I'm Lloyd Wired and I'm a headhunter. I'm privileged to spend my days meeting with some of the influencers, leaders and founders in technology and finance, from unicorn companies to financial disruptors. This podcast, we're going to be hearing from these individuals and really try to understand how they got into fintech, what they're doing, what their company is all about, and perhaps some of the trends that they're looking at in the market. Hussain Kasai, on Fido, um, CEO, co-founder, welcome on to Searching for Mana. It's good to be on. I've uh, been looking forward to you coming on the show from, uh, from afar, certainly seen um, the success of the business. Uh, we haven't worked with each other. Um, but, um, I'm really keen to get stuck into a number of things about the business. Some of your, um, some of your, your journey, some of the, the challenges, the, the things that you've enjoyed the most, and perhaps then we can move on to some predictions. So just so the audience, um, can understand a little about the business, could you give us the elevator pitch, please? Of course. So we help over 1500 businesses verify the government IDs of the customers that they're onboarding so that they're able to onboard these individuals remotely. And from a user perspective, as you're registering with an remittance platform, for instance, you download that platform's app. And at the point of registration, you take a photo of your government ID, like your driving license, and either a photo or a video of your face and submit that. And as on Fido, behind the scenes, we're assessing if that ID seems genuine or not using different technologies, specifically machine learning, which is essentially getting computers to act as though they are the, the human mind and assessing if this is uh, fraudulent or not. And then we check that the person's face so matches a photo on the ID so that the owner of the identity is the person who's presenting it. And that way, we're essentially creating trust and helping people gain access to services. Yeah, so I, um, I switched from... Um, using Monzo to Revolut recently, just because I like to try out the different um, online digital banks to get the user experience. And when I was signing up to Revolut, then I had to um, go through the face recognition with you guys. And that was literally a week ago. Um, So that's one example of where the user experience is amongst one and a half thousand others or or there or thereabouts. Um, What's interesting to me is i mean that's quite a press worthy thing that you're doing right there's um there's facial recognition being used in a lot of different uh contexts be that for security identification tracking etc um how different is the product and the business today from how you conceptualized it when you're at um the complete founding point is a while back. So that goes back eight years. Uh, Different in some ways. Uh, The core essence of it was myself and my two co-founders, we felt that more and more organizations are moving online and yet they don't have a means to verify identities and and that their customers are who they claim to be. So when we look at the way that organizations operate, on the one hand, they can onboard everyone face-to-face as happens when you are onboarded inside a bank branch, for instance. And the alternative is to rely on credit bureaus, which is essentially a centralized log of your date of birth, name, and address. And then that is used to assess whether you exist or not. 
when we looked at it, we, we realized that the face-to-face method is cumbersome, time-consuming, and not very convenient. And then the credit bureau model, although it served an important role until now, given the data breaches, it doesn't serve much, it doesn't add much security. So I can quite easily go online, find someone else's date of birth and address, or pay on the dark web for someone else's identity details, and then be able to sign up. So you don't get convenience and you don't get security. So what was quite clear for us is that we need to come up with something, a new way of doing this, of, of building trust. And on Fido and Latin is a cross between trust and confidence. Yep. So we wanted to build trust, but to solve for the convenience component and the security bit. So the, the reason why we picked government IDs and facial recognition is because that is essentially what happens inside a bank branch, for instance. If you go in and you show your paper-based documents, there's a human bank clerk usually that is checking the ID, checking your face. And my technical co-founder's university research was using computer vision and machine learning to assess whether uh, patterns of, of animals inside 25,000 photos of the jungle. So we could see that we could use that same research and do government ID checks and facial biometric checks using technology. And that, uh, that was uh, the thinking around how we would achieve it. And every year we've just been basically building on that. So you were studying economics, is that right? At Oxford? Uh, economics and management. Yep. Economics and management. And then your friend was working on this uh, facial recognition. Um, and which way around did it come? Because the way you describe it, it sounds like you thought about the market and then wanted to address it um, with the digital solution, um, which makes complete sense. Um, but nonetheless, at the same time in parallel, your friend was working on the exact piece of technology that could work for it. So was it actually you thought, right, we've got this piece of um, intellectual property or we've got this technology and then let's work the business around that. And then you came to looking at that solution. So this um, recognizing that there's a problem and looking for a solution for me started a while back before university. So when I actually turned 10, my parents moved from Iran to the UK. And I remember quite well that it took them a few months to be able to rent in their own name and to be able to open a bank account. And at the time I remember, recall, it was specifically because they weren't registered on a credit bureau. So growing up, I used to think that the credit bureau plays a very important function. And that is very much a uh, robust system. Yep. So I was quite disappointed to see, although it plays a very important role, that is my, what I felt is no longer fit for purpose. So that question around how do you build trust is always with me and my co-founders have their own stories. But um, when it came to recognizing that the essence of the value creation uh, and where the value in the credit bureau model comes, is actually at the bank level when you go inside for the first time, show your paper-based IDs, and then there's a human bank clerk that logs it all, and then that is what is then used by the credit bureaus later. It's predominantly that recognition that, that what happens at in the bank branch level can be digitized and done remotely, and that suddenly it unlocks the convenience and the security components. So uh, with my technical co-founder, I'd actually worked with four other developers before him. And when it came to, he was unique in that he, he wasn't just interested in coding and getting something out. He was equally interested the, the way I was and curious as was our third co-founder, around how do you solve the problem fundamentally? And that's when it was quite natural. It, just, it was a happy coincidence that because he'd seen, given his research, 
that technology and pattern recognition and computer vision and machine learning, it was relatively new then. Not new. This goes back 60 years, as you know, or yeah. longer. It's just uh, computing power and uh, servers becoming more accessible to companies like ours or small startups, in, in essence, being affordable, meant that you could run models and, and uh, use servers in a lot more of an accessible way. Yeah. That's how we basically put the two together. Yeah, no, so, so it's um, you putting yourself in the right place, which in, in this instance is Oxford, but then being involved in entrepreneurial networks. Um, you had the um, idea and, you know, you were working with a bunch of people and then you found this co-founder who you fundamentally both shared these these values. And then if you think about several, eight years ago, um, the difference in what was actually in the market, um, there was probably nothing at that point for you to compete with, right? So you were, you were um, a new proposition. Um, how does that look now? So do you have competitors? Are you market lead? Um, how does that landscape look? So at the time when we started, we had um, within months, three other competitors start at the same time. And that in some ways is, I think, because the technological building blocks came together. Yeah. So throughout human history, we've always looked for a better means to access services. And we've always preferred more secure means, especially from a business offering services and greater trust. That's always uh, been the case. It's a universal truth. But the different technological building blocks uh, uh, came about to enable that to be done more effectively. So the specific ones that apply to us, one is smartphone cameras and the camera quality on smartphones. So if you recall back in 2011, 2012, that's when the iPhone came out with a focus feature, yeah. right? And, and when you want to take a photo of your ID, it's a big help if you can focus on it so that what, the quality is What better. iPhone was that? Yeah, I, could, I couldn't tell you. I wanted to guess. I'm guessing it's like maybe second or third gen. Quite early, uh, yeah. That's, right. It's, it's always surprising, early. isn't it? The iPhone's like just 10 years old, which is crazy. Exactly, exactly. And then there was the internet connectivity. You remember 2G, 3G, 4G, and so on, all that. Because if you're taking a photo or a video of the face and also a photo of the government ID, it needs uh, internet connectivity and good, a relatively good connection to upload relatively quickly. Third is improvements in facial biometrics. And that is the point at which it was scientifically proven that machine learning powered facial recognition can do a better job of matching a face to a photo ID than, um, or matching two faces specifically than the human eye can at scale. And then we applied that and we showed how a face to a photo ID can be done in a more effective way than the human eye can. Uh, and there are other things that, that building blocks came together, but they're the main ones. And that meant that uh, us and, again, our three competitors were, were able to start. We started in fourth place just because we didn't have a company before this. We didn't have a lot of funding. Our first check was about £12,000 that we had to make last for about nine months. And where, did, where, did you, where did you get that from? That was from Oxford University's Innovation Fund. Yeah. Uh, it was essentially an invoice-based <laughs> investment. So, And it wasn't a 30-day one either. It was a 60-day one. So you, you spent um, money, you invoice them, and then they'll pay, but they'll pay after 60 days. So it wasn't great for cash flow either, <laughs> but we were very grateful and it helped us get, get started. Um, that is how we got going. We were in fourth place. Uh, but over the years, we had to work hard uh, so now we're in the number one spot and we're also the fastest growing. Uh, it is a, but I would, the reason why it's a tight race and there are so few of us 
in large part is because there is a uh, access to data challenge where machine learning models are special and that's wonderful, but it's not necessarily insurmountable. It's often misunderstood that it's actually the machine learning models that are the defensible mode. Uh, it's not necessarily, it's, it's access to the data that yeah. is tricky. Because if you imagine a government ID in the face biometric, government ID especially, it's the most sensitive data point of any in the world. And so you only share your ID for, in your example, when you were signing up to an online bank. Now, we're behind the scenes. We're checking that and our models get stronger every time we see these IDs. Um, but it's businesses are signing up to us because we already have that capability. And it's hard for anyone to start from scratch yeah. because you need all these models to get all these IDs to get uh, building a model. You, you have almost 200 countries and each country has three types of ID, a driving license, government ID, and a passport. So that's 600 already. But every couple of years is a new version of each one of these. So soon you end up with thousands. And that's one other reason why we've, we've been able to stay ahead because with machine learning, you can continuously develop and uh, improve so that you have a global coverage capability as well. So that's, um, that's for you refreshing that you're in that type of business model. Um, you know, it was, um, it was competitive to start with because as you say, the technology had come together to a point where you could create this um, type of business, albeit machine learning and the maths behind it have been around for many years. And so then you strike. And if we go back to that point where you've got that £12,000 check from um, Oxford where you invoice on 60 days and then you're through that, you're committed to this, um, you must take a pause and think, um, okay, so how should we do this? Should we create a business, you know, for profit that uh, we take our time on and we learn from and... Uh, you know, maybe we'll make some cash in the short term or on the other end of the scale, let's rapidly scale because only a couple of people are going to win this. Um, and that's what interests us. You know, we want to have as big an impact as possible. You choose the latter here. What was the thinking there? Where, where did that come from? Did, did you know that you were going to try and globally scale and win the race? Or did you logically think it through and just think, well, that's the only way with this business? I don't know the extent to which it was a conscious decision. We were just so heads down day to day, just <laughs> figuring out how to solve the next problem. What we were convinced about was that this is a problem that very clearly is, is needs to be solved. And it, it was for us kind of implicit that if we work hard enough and if we are effective enough at this, then we, we have a shot at being the key uh, solution to it. But that, that's not only not for granted, it actually looks quite unlikely given where we are and given where we started, uh, shut out of university for no sort of experience uh, with a job, never mind like starting and, and running a company. So it was quite important, not only for us to have a very tight relationship and work together quite a bit, but to rapidly learn. And we were able to, we got quite a lot of things, got many, made many mistakes, learned a lot from them. And we relied a lot on uh, advisors too. And that all kind of came in to, to help. But it took, in the first three or four years, uh, it was, we had growth, but it's, we've only as a company really become global and, and the key, I guess, um, category leader. It's only really been three years. So, those... so the last, the first five years yeah. was, I would say, uh, quite a lot of growth, but the exponential component really has been in the last three. So the, the, 
Oxford University, you know, you commit to this, you get that 12K check is 2012. And then you go raise seed when? So our seed, so um, graduated and then August of 2012, that's when the first check came in and we started. Um, it took a full nine months before we raised another 50 or so thousand and then another year. So it was between 2012 to 2015, um, early 2015. So for a good uh, two and a half years, it was basically just seed investments before yeah. we reached our Series A. Yeah, and that was a series of six different uh, six rounds of angel investments because we could only wow. secure a little bit at a time. But yeah. what we did was, and that's not ideal because half my time in the first five years was just raising money. Yeah, but uh, you do what you need to do, and we raise only a little bit each time. But we said these are the milestones we want to hit. Do we all agree that if we hit these milestones, you're going to invest more? And that's what we did. We we, we got good at uh, focusing on specific metrics and targets achieving them if not beating them so that we could impress and get more follow-on investments and then again the timing worked out well because that was the early days of seis and eis so we were the first cohorts that benefited from yep. these uh, specific uh, investment schemes that encourage early angel investors to invest yeah and then you hit this series a which is um a significant round after years of chasing round and um fundraising it's a big enough check for you to kind of take stock and go, okay, this is exciting. You know, let's look at the bank account for just one minute here and be happy about that. Okay, but now there's a job to do. And I assume that at that point you think, um, right, now who's the who's the team that I really want to bring at this point to take this to the next stage? Like what territory should we be in? Like what's all the feedback told us to this point? You know, we've got something here. So it's super exciting moment. And that's in um, 2014, 2015? Early 2015, yeah, correct. 2015, so kind of five years ago. Um, and then at that point, the scale of the business is what? How many people at Series A were you? It would have been 20 yeah. or so. So that's like you're, you're at that age, you know, kind of mid-20s, late mid-20s. Exactly, 25. 25, exactly. yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. quite young to have you know, that on your hands, series A check, you know, all that point up to that, you're like, is this going to work? You know, I've got a great degree, but I've been chasing around for angel investment, albeit probably fantastic experience, great fun, you truly believe in it. But when the series A comes, you go, okay, I've got a really good chance of making that all worthwhile. And then what's that next phase from series A to series B? So just prior to that, although uh, I was 25, one of my co-founders, he was 23 at the time, and the team was 20. Prior to that, at university, so three years before that, the two of us, we were. The, I was a president and he was a vice president of the Oxford Entrepreneur Society, and that had a committee of about 30 people. So over that one-year period, we got quite a lot of experience of not just working and organizing teams and like setting objectives and working towards them and, and so on. But uh, that vibe and that student startup uh, work ethic uh, that you get the right balance um, kept uh, and was the early start of our culture, essentially, which played a big role. But it didn't dawn on me that this is serious because every day you kind of are working away. You don't really take a step back and look at uh, and, and consider where you are. It only really happens when you're on an interview like this or, or, or you kind of read about something that's been published on you. 
But I remember that one point that was kind of um, a little bit strange for me was that, so we'd received a term sheet for our Series A, and it was a few weeks before the due diligence was, uh, I guess, being carried out before the actual uh, documents would be signed and they would become legally binding. And then at one point we were asked sort of who's your, uh, who do you have life insurance with and who do you have this and that with? And I said, I didn't, <laughs> we don't have any of that. Uh, and for a moment I thought, should I get annoyed that I'm being asked to get life insurance? Or is it the case that, you know, if something happens to me, like uh, the company might be in trouble, not just me and my co-founders too. The moments at, at which we actually realized, for me anyway, that this is serious was the point at which we realized like there are 20 people on the team, some have families, and then they rely on the salaries for us to, for, to survive, uh, or at least to, to pay their bills. Uh, that wasn't the case at the student startup, right? Because it's all part-time. You just come and it's, it's, it's good fun, and then you leave if you're not interested in student society. But this was the real world. So it's, it may sound a bit bizarre, but it, for the first three years, it, it just felt like a startup. It's only at the Series A stage when we were actually, uh, it was significant money and uh, 20 plus people where we actually registered that this is serious. Yeah. So back to your question, uh, what is the transition between Series A and Series B? A key part was to structure. So we, we couldn't fail anymore because it was, this was no longer a project or something that um, would be kind of a nice to have. It was a case of we've been trusted by not just the team members, which is the most important thing, but an increasing number of investors. And like we are here to make this work. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out exactly how. And at that point, uh, with every contract, uh, you get momentum. And that's all you need. Like I fundamentally believe, depending on what line of work you're in, if, if it's a for-profit business, you tend to find that as long as you're signing more contracts, it's a bit miraculous, but it solves every other problem. <laughs> you kind of, uh, it, it's it's as long as you keep bringing in uh, more and more uh, exciting, interesting organizations that want to use your service, then most of the other problems tend to, uh, with time, uh, solve themselves. Complete, completely right. And at that Series A phase, and I, I don't know, I suppose still now, you know, how involved are you in bringing in the business and the sales process? How has that evolved? Quite a bit, uh, and so far as my involvement. So today. I want to say I had um, two calls directly with clients. Well, one was a partner, one was a was a client, uh, and I was on two other calls with sales reps or on Fido team members who were trying to make a deal with a client. So that's like four calls today that were relate that was related to, to selling, and that's about average. Uh, just because I think a big strength of startups is that and scale ups is that you can move fast, you can be agile, and you can. Uh, you have discretion. So that is something that you should utilize and use. Uh, and therefore, that, in, in addition to that, you should always stay close to the customer voice and be mindful that attitudes change, behaviors change, preferences change. And just because you're in the number one spot doesn't mean you kind of relax. If anything, you, you, there's a lot you have to do. Well, we feel we're only just getting started. We genuinely do. And so for that, those reasons, uh, I have and I always will continue to be as far as I can be as involved as much as possible. But the only real thing that has changed is like these tend to be bigger size deals than they used to be, but that's the only change. The rest is the same. Yeah. And um, you, not necessarily, by the way, I sometimes get involved with relatively small deals, but if it's an interesting or new use case that I want to understand more about, I'm usually in those uh, as well. Yeah, that's really, it's, 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 it's really important, isn't it, for you to be able to feel what's going on and the feedback because it does change. And ultimately, your job 
amongst a few things is is strategy and pricing and um, just you know you need to be um, talking to people so that makes sense but it can become uh, a lower volume right as you've got a sales team to to do do a lot of the selling but um whilst that journey is going on what what's um what's happening with you in your personal life so you're you're 20 years old at oxford and then by 25 you've got this kind of 20 person team and then that keeps expanding um were you um you were based in um in the uk to start but you went out to america um quite quickly in the the business's life is that right. right? So it was, it was 2014 when we first opened, so two years in. Yep. And even at that point, we, we spoke to some of our investors at the time. They were predominantly first-time angel investors or like early angel investors for the most part. And we said we want to sort of um, expand into the U.S. At the time, our revenues was about £20,000. And we were told that the rule of thumb is once you reach 20 million, that's when you consider your second market. And we realized there's a, quite a gap from 20,000 to 20 million. But we, we were quite sure that the U.S. is the market you need to win in order to be the global provider. Uh, and so we um, went anyway um, and have been in the States in a meaningful way since 2016, although we opened the office in, in 2014. I was quite fortunate in that most of my family live in California anyway, um, quite a few of my siblings as well as my parents. So between the three co-founders, it was always quite natural for it to be myself. And I typically spend about half my time there as well. And how, and, and um, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, so that we can understand, you know, your personal life along that journey as well. Yeah, so there are uh, ups and downs, as you can probably imagine. The, the important thing, though, is for it to, you have to have a work-life balance. I think as long as you have strong enough team members around you, um, there's no reason why you, you, you can't. If you want to, if this is a marathon that's going to last 10 to 15 years, you can't. Uh, repeatedly burn out. Now, there, there will be times at which, yes, you have to do seven days a week. And that's absolutely the case. But for me, I find that as long as it's a productive five days, I usually do uh, half a day on a weekend, so four or five hours on one of the days, and I take one day fully off. Uh, I'm able to to basically um, do it relatively well. So that balance is quite important. And in the week, what are your um, what what does a typical day look like for you? Eight a.m. to maybe six thirty seven. And then in the evenings, you can switch off? More or less, yeah. It, it depends uh, specifically where I am. Because if it's conference season, I'm at a conference, and therefore three, four days, like it's 7 a.m. to like midnight. Uh, <laughs> and that's partly because I actually very much like conferences. It's efficient and you learn, and it's a condensed process, which is perfect for me. So if I'm able to have, um, say, 30, well, not, it's not 30, probably 20 conference days in the year, uh, in aggregate in total, uh, in my mind, that's like a 5x return. So that would typically what would take 100 days or a third of the year, you're able to do over, over 20. So I do definitely make the most of it while I'm there. But even from a young child, when I remember quite well, when I was 9 and 10, I would, after school, go to the market where I could. This is in Iran. It's in Tehran, the capital. And uh, on my way home from school, I'd always stop by wherever I, whenever I could or whenever they would sort of kind of let me. And I was curious and just buying and selling just generally anyway. And it, you, these are mostly like fruit markets and things like that. But the way I look at conferences right now, it's the same. It's essentially a market. Now, it's, a, a, it's, it's nicer. You get coffee <laughs> and you get all these great things. It's definitely cleaner. 
but it's people buying and selling. And there's something about that, that there's a vibe to it that I've always found interesting. And uh, I, I absolutely exhausted. But at the time, I think it's maybe the adrenaline that um, I find myself not running out of energy when I'm at these conferences, especially when, when we're exhibiting. And I would say almost every conference uh, that I go to now on Fido has a presence. Yeah, and you're getting um, good, good business from those conferences, networking with people, enjoying them also. Um, you, um, you are typically now maybe not having to explain what the business does as much, but just seeing what solution they might have, which is a good position to be in. Um, you're giving you're giving speeches at these um, at these conferences. Uh, how's that journey been? Do you enjoy doing that? I do. So it depends. I kind of, um, if it is a, so, so there is, if, if there's a, a, an agenda and questions in many ways, like we have here, that's all good. I, I like programs where it's kind of thought through a little bit. Yeah. I prefer fireside chats, but when it's like panels and there are four or five people and it's only five or 10 minutes and there's no discussion or debate and everyone kind of agrees, I I won't lie. I actually, when I'm invited, I still do go usually, but I, I wouldn't say I enjoy them. But if it's other formats where it's interesting, topical, and sometimes like challenging, uh, I like them. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Um, okay, cool. So if we come to to kind of like current time, obviously um, we should probably discuss the fact that you know, there's a global crisis going on. Um, I think that, you know, I have to think about this with the podcast. I was like, I don't know if I want to bring it up because you know you want evergreen. You should go ahead. Yeah, you of want course. you want you want evergreen content. But I think just like if you talk about somebody who had a business in the two thousand eight recession, you'd understand that story now. People are going to understand this story. Um, this is interesting for you and your business in particular. Um, I think um, so. I was reading um, very recently that. Um, the UK government are looking to potentially roll out some, um, I think, GPS tracking so that people can see if they've been um, in close proximity to somebody who's got COVID-19. Um, and I, it's interesting. It's, a, it's, an, it's an ethics question, isn't it, of which side people would fall on, where the merits are, of course, people would be able to identify if perhaps they're less likely to have it or perhaps if they do have it and then know that they should self-isolate and then that solves the um, that solves some of this, the, the, the situation we've got right now. Um, so I don't know if, you know, some of your technology is appropriate to do that or if that's something that you've been looking to collaborate on. Um, and if not, I just want to kind of, I suppose, take the, the conversation to, to ethics on these type of things. So if we start with there, how would you feel about if the government were to roll that out, if that would be the right decision or not? So if we take um, Anfido out of it for a second, an identity, it's from a government level, it's got a, a few basic uh, functions or objectives. And one is to help society function. It is hard when that is, we're in an environment where everyone is supposed to be in quarantine and self-isolation where possible, or at least staying at home. 
the challenge from their perspective, I think in the UK, we, are, we have just about over 20,000 who have recovered. And there are, that's just an estimates. It may well be five to 10 times that number. Um, so they are able to go and become volunteers for the NHS, go back to work, and actually um, they are no longer at risk of catching it a second time. So from a government perspective, what can you do with that in mind? Do you ask in, in a setting where everyone really ought to be at home? And, and the more we don't do that, the longer this is going to take. So it's, it's one of those things where everyone ought to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to be effective. So having the means by which you have 20,000 and numbers rapidly growing who've recovered, who want to go back either to serve an important purpose and, and the relief efforts or to go back to work and um, often the, the, that they can be both and the same, then you can rely on individuals to just, um, when asked by the police, why are you outside? You can say, I'm, I've already recovered. Or you can have some sort of app that tells uh, the authorities they have, or you can attach it to an identity, for instance. So from a government perspective, this is a very important thing to think about, not just the UK government, governments elsewhere. We're on conversations in quite a few of these. Uh, so just to set the example of China, to shed some light on that, because as a first mover here, they are uh, a month or two ahead of everyone else. And they, they have had good success, despite what happened to begin with, and there were delays in them announcing this and so on. Uh, they're in, in actually a, a good place as far as people are slowly going back to work. So the way it works there, is you have a uh, on on an app you get a green amber and red red means you you ought to be in self quarantine and amber is you may have been near someone so you, you should stay seven days fourteen days uh, away where you can and green means you can actually go out um, so that kind of system you can see has all those benefits the ethical point here so from a government perspective is is the trade off between helping society get back to normal versus respecting um, partly uh, sort of freedom and the liberties we enjoy and also privacy. So in China, you get society going back to normal, but no privacy, right? Because the government just tracks everything that you do. <laughs> so they're, they're well-placed to, to give advice. Um, and we have this Orwellian challenge. So from an ethical perspective, uh, the government has a duty to help everyone get back to no normality as soon as possible. But we hold our values to be very important as far as privacy, security, and everything comes into it. And with that in mind, technology now is at a place where it no longer needs to be a trade-off. So there are means by which an individual can um, create and verify their identity, and they can have a test, and that test can, if, if they, they are confirmed to have already recovered from the virus, then they can go and prove the fact that they've recovered without having to share their personal details like dates of birth and address, without having to have that logged in a centralized database and so on. So we enable that as part of what we do, but we also have powered partners to be able to do that as well. So there is a bit of a gap as far as the um, governments fully knowing what the latest technology is and as far as these are very solvable. And with that comes the issue of thinking this is binary. Either you have to be an authoritarian regime that is kind of monitoring everyone like the China, or you're in a place where, you know, there's no, there's no hope. But there absolutely is a middle ground and technology can now uh, show that to be the case. Yep. Um, which, so that gets, me, that gets me starting to think about um, the opportunity of your business. So today it's being used... Um, as we've discussed, for um, signing up to a Revolut, for instance, 
in preference to having to go to a bureau like you might have used to or to a branch or um, you know verifying um, via um, documents that you have to send and all these type of things um, and other and other examples as well but if you see this pushing out into the future more and more successfully then 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 where do you see the business adding value overall where where could it be in three five years um, from our from a from a kind of consumer's experience because could, could it be could it be uh, you don't actually have a physical passport for instance could it be um, you know there's a number of things that I could think of where this could be useful what what's your predictions and what are your hopes um, so in our view the proliferation of digitization has only just started and that less than one percent of the market has come to fruition and 99 percent is yet to come so your question around where are the applications and the, the relevance uh, so as it stands from a user experience perspective the two-thirds of the client base are financial services then the other two big categories one is just trust marketplaces if you want to share a car share a home or something similar and then the, the, the third being um, digital access so self-checking in into a hotel or checking into an airport for instance and all those examples where we get to as far as the future goes um, our focus is remote identity verification in an increasingly remote world where in periods such as now where you're sitting at home you still need to be able to do all these things uh, and, and we uh, want to play a role in helping that so as far as what's relevant right now and how the current period is likely to change um, everyone's perspective or, or the, the, the acceleration of the recognition of the important role that identity plays. Uh, examples include uh, digital payments. So we're lucky that we are increasingly living in a cashless society, at least uh, here. But in many emerging markets, cash is still dominant. In many parts of the UK still, actually cash is, is still uh, quite common. But it's not hygienic, right? And we'd never thought of that before, but now we do. And so the move towards digital payments is, is going to become now have another hygiene impetus to it too. Equally, when a supermarket wants to decide to give privileged access to those who are over 70, say, how was it, how was it able to know that if, if someone's signing up from home and saying, I want these groceries delivered, they now need to be able to prove that they're over 70 or under 18 or, or over 18 or whatever it may be. So those kind of accesses. The one the example you talked about previously around the government's role and having a scenario where if someone's recovered from the virus, being identified, then having the ability to go and go back into uh, the outside world uh, and being able to easily prove the fact that they've recovered. And other examples that are increasingly, I guess, becoming a, a bigger, bigger deal. All of these center around us as individuals being able to easily and securely prove our legal identity. And by legal identity, I mean your date of birth, name and address, what can identify you. and the way we look at the world is that there's going to be a need for this to be standardized. Now, in comparison to your social identity, that's your likes and dislikes and so on, Facebook has standardized that. As far as your professional identity goes, your academic and your career and, and everything like that, LinkedIn has standardized that. So our purpose and our focus is to standardize the way everyone is able to easily and securely prove their legal identity. And to your question around, will we get to a stage where you no longer even need your passport? That is very much uh, the hope in that once a user has been verified and enrolled, uh, we want to enable a means by which they are able to securely uh, store the fact that they've been verified and only they own and control that. No third party, definitely not a, a um, 
uh, others involved. And then they are able to provision access to all the different uh, use cases that Beam needs for them to be verified uh, using their biometrics and not, without necessarily having to go back and reshow their identity every time. Who would who would be um, looking at that? Because that that's huge, right? So it's very exciting. Um, who would be looking at that, thinking, okay, well, we need to acquire this business quickly. Then are you getting approached? You don't need to obviously be specific, but there must be businesses such as a Facebook going, okay, well, we could just acquire this business, or um, you could have governments, obviously looking to to partner with you, but also try and buy the technology. Um, the list goes on. So what what's what's that as the CEO and the the co-founder? What's that like at the moment? Are you, ha- I mean, it just sounds like obviously the mission's exciting forevermore. So um, you know, in, in whatever guise you're going to be um, having a really intellectual um kind of reward from this business but are there offers coming what type of businesses are looking at acquiring this or or are they not um yeah so there have been uh, quite a few discussions not in-depth ones because the response usually is that uh we're not looking to sell we only have just gotten started we have a long way to go there is quite a bit of discussion around alternatives so can we like partner on a commercial basis or can we partner on you uh, basically invest, for instance. So we're lucky in that uh, both Salesforce and Microsoft are investors. Um, there's an issue with Facebook in that we are both strategically and, and uh, as far as our purpose and mission goes, completely counter to each other. So as we succeed, um, we have a different vision of the way people's identity and data should be used as, as Facebook does So and Amazon. So there's no strategic uh, alignments with Amazon or Facebook, but there are there is with the majority of others. And the reason why Amazon and Facebook there's no strategic alignment is that their perspective is um, essentially, or the way their technology work, works is that they see you as a customer. They try to get as much data on you as possible so they can um, essentially profile you and then target you for specific uh, ends. And they're not always um, worthy ends nor ethical ones. So that is counter to what we are doing. What we're doing is we're helping you verify your own identity, where you store your data, us and no one else can access that, but we enable you to prove that you are who you claim to be to others. But when we prove to others that you are who you claim to be, you set the terms of that. You can say you only want to share the fact that you're over 18. You only want to share the fact that you live in this jurisdiction and nothing else. And that gives you more power. So that means we're leveling the playing field on the internet or in the digital world a little bit. So that it's not a case of the, the private organization getting as much information as as possible. It's the opposite. It's you only giving them only what they uniquely need for a very short period of time in order for them to know that you are who you claim to be. And for that reason, if we were to sell now, uh, to be quite frank, privacy isn't prioritized right now no, by most organizations in, in a true deep sense of the word, uh, nor is it currently actually very much uh, appreciated by consumers. So in my view, less than 1% of actual consumers know about privacy properly and care about it deeply. But that number is growing. So because we have a 10 and 20 year plan, our view is that this is going to become a major significant factor in the long period. And we have, myself personally, most of us have 
um, seen the downsides of identity not being done right. So our attempt is not the first one at solving identity, right? The credit bureaus is actually a centralized log an identity ecosystem, but it's uh, centralized data has risks of being breached and does not respect privacy to the full extent because you have very little control about what data they hold on you and their accuracy issues and so on. So we want to solve for that by putting privacy at the heart of everything that we do and enabling you to gain access and have security and have convenience without having to compromise on your privacy. And as far as that goes, um, we have a long way to go to prove that out first and then see naturally um, where we can take it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's what I thought when you've got something like that kind of in your teeth, then uh, you set 10 and 20 year plans because it's so exciting. And obviously you are in a business where what you're doing has that, um, that real value proposition. So you're doing something that you passionately believe is ethical and is going to improve people's privacy. Um, whereas I think, you know, a business like a Amazon or a Facebook, whether it was intentional or not, you know, you can be making all the revenue in the world and having exciting scale, but you could disconnect with what it's, um, what it's doing. And we've obviously seen the world do that with those brands over the last five years. So it's, 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 you've, you've ended up in this perfect position. I'm free from setting values and making sure you aligned with your founders and your team along the way, where um, it's not only being successful, it's not only number one, but the cause is really great. So um, congratulations for that. That's, that's incredible. Um, and hold those ethics true. Um, and I think it will start becoming a lot more than 1%. Uh, I think it's right now going to, um, be one of the most important things for people to make sure that um, you know their their privacy is is um, is protected, but also like you say that they get the choice um, whether they're opting in on how it's um, how it's held and how it's used. Also, um, I asked you know where you think it can be used over the next three or five years, which is from a from a listener or a kind of a consumer's perspective. Um, I'd be interested in um, you explaining how the business will look over the next um, short period of term, time. So you raised something around 50 million in 2019, I think. Um, what type of runway does that give you? And um, what are you doing with that investment? And do you now look to take the business into to profit um, or are you going to go raise again? So as far as our, our growth trajectory and plans, it is the key focus is being global so that we've got quite a bit of activity. And uh, so we're a team of 350, uh, about 200 are based in London. And that's where the majority of the tech team sits. We have about 60 in the US, about 40 in Lisbon, uh, half a dozen in France, half a dozen in India, and half a dozen in Singapore. And a big part of our growth plans is to continue investing in these markets and growing, especially because uh, there are, you can very clearly see the trends that you can see pockets of growth here. Let's call it crowdfunding, remittance, whatever it may be, or car sharing. We can very clearly see that in parts of Southeast Asia, this is going to be the next thing. And therefore, it is to be in all these markets. And so your question around the next... Um, three to five years, in the, in the, even in the short term, 
we can see on a daily basis the downside of identity not being done well. Right now, there are more than 700,000 volunteers waiting to go and help the NHS. They just have to sit at home for a week because they have no easy way of verifying themselves, right? You have this issue of, we were talking about it earlier, people who have recovered from the virus now not able to go outside because the police will say, why are you here? Rightfully so, it's just, it's just it's disconnect, right? Even access is, is a broader um, sense. How many passwords do you and I have when you want to access your online services or any one of these? You have to type away and then you forget your password and then ask you to reset it. And then you have to get a pin on your phone and, and then, it, oh, it's just expired again, right? And, and these all, so 50 years ago, we were able to go to the moon and I can't get my device to know that it's me trying to access it. So these are the challenges that uh, we are really excited about solving so that when you able, are able to delight customers, back to the beginning of the conversation, you said when you sign up to an uh, online bank, you enjoy that experience because it took a minute or two. Now, the reason why that was, I'd argue, a good experience, because, you know, the comparison is when you walk down the high street, you try to find your utility bill, you queued up. And, you know, the first time you and I opened a bank account, it was many hours, if not days. And so you know what to compare. In a very similar way, um, we think that we're going to look back on this period in five and 10 years time and see how we used to be held back uh, in such a great extent because we weren't able to easily and securely prove our identity. So us in the next three to five years, um, with quite a bit of urgency, is to solve for that so that no one has to go through uh, this issue. And if we are gearing up to live in a world where remote working is going to become more common, we just can't afford for a third of the workforce not to be active, purely because they have no easy way of verifying that they are who they claim to be. And um, I think on that point, we'll um, thank you for your, your time. Um, it's a fascinating journey so far, and it sounds like it's only going to get more um, more exciting for you. And genuinely, um, I do wish you all the success I'm sure you'll have because I completely buy into um, what you guys are doing on your mission. Um, so thank you so much. That's kind. Thank you.